0: Yeah, hello again, hello. It's a Thursday. The Richie Allen Show begins now. It's exactly five. It's four, 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 four. It's four. Oh, it happens so hard. It's four o'clock here in Salford. It is the 18th of January, 2024. Nice to be with you.
1: It's the BBG, not the BBC. This is your Richie Allen Show, live from the magnificent city of Salford.
2: It's the Richie Allen Show. Broadcasting live on richieallen.co.uk and multiple platforms around the world. And now, here's your host,
0: Richie Allen. Yeah, me being in Egypt is a habit that dies hard. How are you? You all right, yeah? Good now. Coming up in the second hour of the program, a little bit later on, we'll be joined live from Fermoy in Cork by none other than Laura Boyle. Now she's in Fermoy, um, in Tipperary. Uh, the Telegraph newspaper reporting today rural Ireland revolts as towns only hotel is closed to accommodate asylum seekers. Riot police drafted in in Tipperary as immigration influx, the largest since 2007 comes amid a shortfall of 250,000 homes in Ireland. So that's in Tipperary but we're going to Fermoy to talk with Louise Boyle who's a part of an initiative there uh, ...called Save Abbeville House in Fermoy. Uh, so, looking forward to speaking with Laura Boyle a bit later on. Did I say Louise? I'm all over the place. It's Laura Boyle, of course. It's been one of those days again. Let's get rid of the theme tune. Good start, Baldy. I know. Good start today. It's just as well I'm experienced... And I don't melt down. Uh, God forgive me, Laura Boyle. Yes, chatted with Laura on WhatsApp today. Uh, seems like a lovely person. Uh, she's living a few doors away from Abbeyville House in Fermoy. Part of a group of people there attempting to prevent 56 male asylum seekers going in there. I'm staying with this story. Um, regularly because it's very big, because this is a big issue and it has ramifications or implications for, not just for Ireland, obviously, but for everywhere else in Europe. So Laura Boyle, a little bit later. Before that, David Curtin returns to the programme, the founder and leader of the Heritage Party. Lovely guy. It's been a while since David was on. I just want to chat generally with David about the big news stories of the week. I'm sure we'll talk about the goings-on in the Commons overnight and the Rwanda plan and the silliness of that uh, with David and Moore. So that's it for Thursday. Good luck. I'll see you on Sunday. No, no, I'm sticking around for a couple of hours, is what I am doing. Let me tell you about something I talked about on The Papers podcast, which I don't always do. Um, I upload a podcast every morning called The Papers, which is pretty easy to figure out what it's about. It's about The Papers. And there is a story that's been on my mind all day long. The Mirror. And you'll find this at mirror.co.uk. So The Mirror is supposed to be a lefty newspaper. The newspaper of the working man and woman. And the newspaper of the trade unions. It's supposed to be. right. Don't, don't believe the hype. None of it really is true. Anyway, it it has a good story today. It's an exclusive. It's a well-written piece. Obviously very well resourced very well researched, as well as resourced. And it's a story about how, since 2010, one quarter of the UK's bus routes have disappeared. This is true. Now, this is crazy, right? One quarter. Now, you might think to yourself, well, this is what what kind of craziness is this? What kind of gaslighting? On the one hand, they're telling us, well, get rid of your car to save the planet. Cycle, walk, Use public transport. On the other hand, they are cancelling routes all over the place and it's causing chaos for people. It's really, really, really problematic for people across the country, meaning that they struggle to get to work. Not everybody drives a car and not everybody can afford a car. Car insurance is astronomical and the price of diesel and petrol is prohibitive too. So a lot of people rely on public transport because they can't quite yet afford to own a car. So you might think, well, if they are so desperate to reach net zero, what's going on? Why close routes? And I have a theory that I hope you can shoot down. You can blow it out of the water if you like. And I mentioned it on the papers this morning. I, my theory is, is that nationalisation is on the cards. Now, as an old lefty trade unionist, I should be cock-a-hoop. I should be over the moon. I should be full of pith and vinegar. I should be turning cartwheels, all of that. At the idea or the prospect of taking back the family jewels, jewels from the dirty corporate bastards that um, bought them when the government sold them off, when Thatcher, Major and Blair and Cameron sold off, and George Osborne, of course, sold off the family jewels. So I should love this, right? Great, great, take the water, take energy, take public transport, take it all back into public ownership. Yes, get it away from the private sector. Yes, you would imagine I would say that. Well, not anymore, because I suspect something even more, something sinister is going on. I think when we talked for years, so when I, long before I was an independent media content creator, I was a journalist in the mainstream and I had to keep my political leanings to myself. Obviously you had to be objective and I did. I did it quite well, if I do say so myself. But of course, again, my politics in private would have been on the left. And I would have talked a lot about how public services were being, (coughs) excuse me, were being basically left go to rack and ruin and were left fall apart deliberately so that the public would get so sick of it they would accept privatisation. And I think, to some extent, or to a to a large extent, that is true. We saw this in the 70s and 80s. It was a classic tactic by the governments of today. You want to privatise something, well, first of all, make it very, very, very unworkable to the point where Joe Public gets so fed up of it and you say, right, let's sell it off because this company has a good track record of running whichever utility, whichever whichever family jewel um, it was at the time. And I would have said, look, they deliberately wrecked the stuff, it's problem reaction solution. And I have a feeling that we're seeing problem re- reaction solution in reverse with the cutting of, and the culling, if you want to say culling, of bus routes around the UK. I think they are provoking a clamour for nationalisation of uh, transport. I really do. Now, of course, I have no evidence to support this, and I might be wrong, because, uh, well, you know, even though I was only wrong once in my life, and that was when I thought I was wrong, I could be wrong again. So this, I I could be wrong. So nationalise this stuff, and then, great, they're nationalising it. But, here's the kicker. At that point, they might do what we are seeing happen around Europe, They might say, guess what, everybody, public transport is free for everybody. Not for the over-65s anymore, the lazy baxters, the tight feckers. No, of course, over-65s deserve to have public transport free, of course they do. But they might say, everybody gets it free, and we're giving it to everybody free because we are on the verge of climate collapse, floods in Kuala lumpur uh, rain in Timbuktu, and it's all of our fault because of what a CO two we create, and um, the planet's about to die if we don't do something immediately. We cannot wait till twenty fifty. So therefore, we're going to give everybody unlimited public transport. You know, national train travel, local travel, maybe not national, maybe not, maybe not initially, but um, public transport for free in the city which within you reside. So you live in Manchester, great. You can get any of the buses, any of the trams, and even the trains in Greater Manchester if you need it for free. But you've got to give up your car. And I know that sounds a bit sensational, and I try not to do that on the Richie Allen Show, but you never know. You never know, do you? So what do you think of that? Shoot it down. Now, as it stands, I cannot... Um, My internet provider, I have a designated line into BBG Towers. I'm actually with Virgin, not that it matters. I cannot get on richieallen.co.uk. I cannot access my webmail. I know that other people can, but I can't get on it. That means if you send me a message through my app today, I can't read it. But using my telephone, uh, my smartphone, I can get onto my website through 5G. I don't understand this. So if you'd like to send a message to the programme, go to richieallen.co.uk, where it says comment live, leave the message and I will read it. It will pop up in front of me. Okay? So richieallen.co.uk, where it says comment live, leave me a comment today and I will read it. If you send one through the Richie Allen Show app, I won't get it. My pal Hayden Hewitt has been doing his best to figure out what's going on with the website. Um, it's a DNS issue I believe in some parts of the world it's it's writing itself or something, it's routing back around the world, I have no idea at the moment I can't get on it through my broadband connection but I can get on it through my ridiculous smartphone, so there you are okay, let's leave that there so what do you think, is there any is, do you think there's anything to that to that idea, you know that um they might nationalise, then give it to you for free, <coughs> excuse me Sorry for coughing at you, and then say right, you've got to give up the car, you've got to give up the motorcycle, the van, uh, the, the the people carrier, and all of that. Maybe all right. Let's talk about a story which came up on RTE News this afternoon. Do you want to hear it? Let's hear the news. One o'clock news, RTE. And it's about Ireland's former chief medical officer, Dr. Tony Houlihan. This guy is up there with Chris Whitty and Anthony Fauci um, for being... What would you call him? I don't know. I don't know what, 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 what is appropriate, what derogatory term is appropriate for somebody like Tony Houlihan. A guy who, who basically ripped up the Hippocratic Oath, ripped it in pieces and then set fire to it and betrayed the people of Ireland during 2020, with lie after lie after lie. Let's hear this story, RTE News today. The
1: former chief medical officer has said that Ireland should consider having an additional trained workforce to deal with future pandemics to ensure that highly trained medical professionals are not pulled from their core duties.
0: What he means is Houlihan, he means like a fire, like we have the fire service in Salford. So create a whole new medical force. A group of medical people who are not working week to week or month to month. They're just sitting around waiting and preparing for the next pandemic.
1: Dr. Tony Holohan was speaking at a symposium on essential workers during the pandemic. Female essential workers were more at risk of contracting COVID-19, experienced more anxiety and stress and worked more intensively during the pandemic. They were among the findings of a UCD study into essential work during COVID-19 and today a symposium was held looking at what lessons could be learned from those workers' experiences.
2: They had responsibilities, care responsibilities, outside the workplace, in the home, taking care of elderly people, taking care of their children. And we know that the burden of those care responsibilities falls upon women. So one of the things, I think one of the important policy
0: implications of that is we need to put in place greater supports for women uh, th- that was dr john geary from ucd
1: British nurses and midwives organization whose mainly female members were on the front line during covid 19
0: the front line
1: said a full public inquiry needs to be held into the pandemic
0: a full public inquiry into the pandemic and how it adversely affected women
1: and the main nurses were the most affected group of workers And the after-effects are still with them, so we have a lot of burnout, we have a lot of uh, psychological issues that we feel need to be focused on and dealt with in order to ensure that people will stay at work. In these very essential services.
0: And that was Phil Nisheda, General Secretary of the Irish Nurses Union. Let's hear this guy, Tony hoolahan now, who did the Fauci job and did the Chris Witty job during the scam demic. Listen to this guy, this is really interesting.
1: The man who led the country's response to COVID 19 said looking after the health of frontline workers is key in order to be prepared for the next pandemic.
2: It is appropriate to express concern about the ex- significant fall in COVID and influenza vaccine uptake among our healthcare staff.
0: Now, why do you think healthcare staff in Ireland are turning their backs on the influenza jab and COVID jabs? Why would healthcare workers be rejecting offers of these jabs? Hurlahan says he's concerned about it. I mean, this is a, it's a stupid question. That is a stupid question that I have just posed. We know why healthcare workers in Ireland are saying no to the flu jab and to the COVID jab because the flu jab is worthless and it might, it might cause you harm. And the COVID jab is even more worthless or equally worthless and it could cause you very severe harm. Here's Houlihan. If healthcare
2: staff are not being vaccinated... How can we expect the wider population to be vaccinated?
0: Exactly. So well done to the healthcare workers who are rejecting these vaccines. And let's hope that the news that healthcare workers don't want it trickles down to the rank and file of the Irish people, the great unwashed, because they might reject these ridiculous and dangerous vaccines too. Interesting that, isn't it? Great concern that there's been a huge fall in the numbers of healthcare workers taking the flu and COVID jabs. Yes, of course, there's been a huge fall. They're not stupid, you see. They have eyes, they have ears. They know. This made me laugh. And, you know, look, while I have very strong opinions about Palestine and the rights of the Palestinian people, um, I, I, I do my best to see things from all sides. I, I've always done that, even though I will always support, you know, the, the rights of the Palestinians to have their own state, their own home and to be left alone and to get on with it. But anyway, you might remember not too long after October 7th and the Hamas attack, which is for me remains very problematic, but I won't get into that now. And what I mean by that is the circumstances around it were very curious. But of course, very, very soon thereafter, Israel began the genocide and it's carried it on now for more than three months, right? Anyway, you might remember that when the very first protest took place in London, tens of thousands, if not a hundred thousand, took to London. The very first one to protest against what Israel was doing, there was a tube driver who uh, took his, um, his 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 uh, his what what did they call it? They talk into it's almost like a CB, you know, when they talk to the passengers. The tannoy maybe I don't know, but anyway, he's in he's in the cab. He's in the front of the tube, he's driving the tube and he takes his uh, little thing and he says, good morning ladies and gentlemen and then he starts chanting free Palestine. Remember, remember, but he was unlucky because there was a Jewish woman on the tube who happened not not unlucky that there was a Jewish woman on the tube but that the Jewish woman was a journalist and she dobbed him in I made a big song and dance about it, so he got suspended. He's back on duty. Anyway, thank God for that. He's back on duty. And of course, the conservative media is absolutely sick. The hypocrites. They're gutted. Gutted. Uh, because they shill for Israel. They shill for genocide. So it's debatable even whether they mean it or not. But anyway, here's former Tory advisor, a guy called James Price, on Talk TV. He is not happy. That the tube driver, who has not been named, returns to drive his tubes today.
2: If you're a Jewish person in London on the tube, what are you going to be feeling at this point, right? You're already seeing that hundreds of thousands of people, and it's not just uh, a legitimate cause that these people are talking about. So many of them now are saying, oh yeah, we love the Houthis
0: as well. We love it when people go and, and blow up shipping that's going to you know, affect medical supplies and all the rest of it. Who said that though? Who's gone public to say, oh, we love the Houthis and we love them blowing up supplies in the Red Sea? I, I, I've I, not come across anybody saying that. They're saying, oh yeah, you know, in Australia, was it gas the Jews? People were shouting at these marches, all this kind of stuff. We've
2: seen that this is not just a principled political stance against Israel. But
0: well, it is, it is. The marches were a political stance against Israel, very principled. And you might have had one Egypt saying gas the Jews, maybe one, maybe two. There were hundreds of thousands of people there. And here's... The kicker again. The kicker, and um, many, many of them, many of them were actually Jewish people protesting against the genocide in Gaza. But they never mentioned this. There is so much anti-Semitism here. You've got idiots. No, there's not. Idiots who go along with signs that say, "Yeah, yeah, a
2: socialist intifada," and when asked, they don't even know what the word means. <laughs> right? Uh, the fact that this guy has got away with just a slap on the wrist is an outrage. And if you're, joking- it's
0: not an outrage. It's not an outrage. These guys are hypocrites. This guy Price was one of the biggest mouths. He was one of the loudest voices on the conservative media during lockdowns, um, you know, shouting about how people were being shut down and you know how some people were losing their jobs because of their opinions. What a hypocrite! Now he's calling for this tube driver to be sacked and presumably never to have another job again because he had the temerity to say free Palestine. Jewish in London you know I feel very sorry for you because you must be terrified.
2: Yeah and uh... Jews
0: are not terrified. I know lots of Jews, uh, Jewish people in Manchester and I swear to God I've asked Jewish people. Are you terrified? No. Why are you not terrified? What's there to be terrified about Richie? All of these m- mad people running around shouting intifada and jihad. Uh, I've not seen any people like that Richie. Exactly, they don't exist. Hey, do you want to hear um, the idiot Kevin O'Sullivan? He's the presenter of this programme. A complete shill. Will you hear this guy. Um, so he w- would also like to see the tube driver sacked and presumably burned to death at the stake somewhere. Here's Kevin O'Sullivan. You've got this organisation of gays uh, called uh, Queers for Palestine. Uh, Queers for Palestine.
2: Uh, why don't you go and live in Palestine? Find out what it's like to be a gay person in Palestine. Uh, not so good, right?
0: Yeah, where would they live exactly in Palestine? Where exactly would gays or queers for Palestine live? I mean, the place is one big missile crater, Kev, you know? I don't know if you've been paying attention to the news. There isn't anywhere to live there. There's no hospitals now, after the Israelis blew up the Jordanian army hospital. There's nothing there, Kev. So queers for Palestine might be more than happy to take you up on your offer. Yeah, we'll go there and we'll see what it's like for gay people. Except there's nothing there. It's been turned into a Mad Max 5 type uh, Thunderdome, post-apocalyptic wilderness. There's nothing now in Gaza, you dickhead. Kevin O'Sullivan. Anyway, let's um, leave that. No, let's not leave that there. Uh, Very briefly, uh, Jeremy Greenstock was a British diplomat for years, worked at the United Nations. Here he is speaking to LBC's Andrew Marr. Uh, Israel is digging a hole for itself with its disproportionate response. In Gaza, says... Jeremy Greenstock I'm worried that Israel is doing itself quite severe harm and I put it like this Andrew when the dust actually settles which I hope will be soon in Gaza they will not have solved the Palestinian issue for Israel or for the Palestinians and they will have made more enemies from non-palestinians in their neighborhood and around the world and they will have made it more difficult for their great supporters in North America and in Europe to support Israel on other things. So they've got to look at the whole scope of what they're doing. They were entirely justified to go for Hamas, but they've gone for it in a way which many people around the world regard as disproportionate. And there's going to be a blowback from that. Going to be some blowback. This is Green Stock. We'll see about blowback. 21 minutes past the hour. Thanks for your messages. I'm on my phone. Shouldn't be using your phone at work. I admonished a guy. Have you ever done that? Have you ever been so disgusted by customer service that you admonished the the person who's not very you know, competent at dishing out the customer service? I was in a local supermarket the other morning. I might as well say what it is. It's Tesco. Where most people who work there are pretty okay. But there's one bloke who works there. He's pretty awful. They didn't have any checkouts open. And, um, See, I, I had to do the self-service, and the guy couldn't have been any more rude. So I told him about it. He wasn't too impressed. Um, he was on his phone. I was asking him questions. And he wouldn't. He wouldn't look at me. He was on his phone. He was on his phone. I said, "Listen, would you mind putting your phone away and answer my question, please?" And uh, he refused to look at me. I couldn't get over this. I'd never seen anything like it, to be honest. Anyway, um, have you done that before? Have you called somebody out for poor customer service? Um, I'm not. Yeah, I'm not a real bastard. I wouldn't take it any further. I mean, I wouldn't be calling for the manager or anything like that, but I told the guy he was pretty useless. Anyway, Davey says, Richie, if they nationalise transport and ban the car, the van, etc., there will be a lot of scrap metal lying about. Maybe it's time to get into the scrap metal business. What do you think, Davey? Well, I'll go into business with you, Davey. If you've got the initial capital to get the to get the yard. We need a yard, Davey. We need a big yard. And we need some of those big crunching machines that crunch the cars. Yeah, I'll go into business with you, BBG Davey. Scrap. Uh, Christopher says, for some time now, public transport has been very cheap or even free. My current pass gives me unlimited transport on bus and metro in two zones for 21 euro a month. It says Christopher, thank you. Lucy says, um, I think you're on to something regarding the nationalisation of public transport, she says. And then says, I'm dealing with two vomiting teenagers today. Any listener tips to make them better would be appreciated. I'll give you a tip, Lucy. Tell them to shut up and get, get up to bed. Shut up and get up to bed. I don't want to be listening to you complaining about vomiting. And then clean up after yourself. That's what I would say, Lucy. Because I'm a heartless bastard, me. Uh, Patricia says maybe the solution is 15 minute cities. That way, who needs cars or public transportation? Everything is so close, people can walk or bike. And Patricia has taken my idea, and of course, she's advanced it even further. It's exactly what I should have said. Yes, Patricia. Because while they nationalise, or they they, they may very well nationalise public transport completely. They they may also take steps to ensure that um, whatever people need is within 15 minutes of their front door. So when it comes to selling the idea of getting rid of your car because um, we're going to give you a metro and a bus pass so you can travel within your city um, for free as long as you give up your car. I'm with you on that, uh, Patricia. 24 minutes it is past the hour. Keep these comments coming in. Uh, It's richieallen.co.uk and it is Comment Live, the best way uh, to reach me today. Okay, was there anything else that I wanted to chat about in this uh, news rundown? I'm not sure there is really. I'm not sure there's an awful lot for you really. Um, As I said, the Telegraph is reporting today that riot police drafted in to Ross Cray in Tipperary, it deals with that story, The Telegraph, but also um, does a pretty good job of explaining what's going on around the country and why immigration to Ireland rose by 32% in a year. I mean, that's amazing, isn't it? More than 140,000 in the year ending April uh, 2023, at a time when there is a shortfall of a quarter of a million homes in Ireland and rent prices in Ireland are astronomical. Yes, they are. Right, it's been 20 years since I lived in Ireland, but I, of course, know many people uh, back home and things are crazy there. Um, what else is there to tell you before we start speaking with our guests? There is an interesting piece in The Conservative Woman today, written by Kathy. How do you pronounce Kathy's surname? I've meant to invite her on the programme. She followed me on Twitter and I followed her back. She's the editor of The Conservative Woman. Kathy, is it Gingell? Is it G-Y-N-G-E-L-L? Is it Gyingell or Gingell? I don't know. I'll have to find an interview. on on YouTube or something where I can hear her surname being pronounced. That's how you do it on the radio, you see. You just kind of find an interview and then you're in. But she's written an interesting story uh, for the con woman today, conservativewoman.co.uk. Andrew Bridgen gains more backbench support for a full parliamentary debate on excess debts. Now, earlier this week... Uh, Bridgen chaired uh, a debate on excess debts in the in Westminster, but not in the House of Commons in another building or another room, which the name of this room escapes me. It doesn't matter. Nineteen people turned up, but some of the things that were said at that meeting at that debate were very interesting. Um, Kathy Gingell, writing for the Conservative Woman, reckons that Bridgen is not too far away. Uh, from achieving a full parliamentary debate on excess debts. But the problem, I suppose, with that is, is that Bridgen previously secured a parliamentary debate on vaccine harms, on COVID jab harms, and only about eight or nine people turned up to it. So it's hard to know, isn't it? It's hard to know. Let's have a quick look at the BBC to see what's going on, as it might have happened uh, in the time we came on air. Um, no, um, well, there is there is a story which might affect you if you live in the UK or if you live in South Wales. Uh, Tata Steel will close furnaces with 3,000 jobs expected to go this year. That is catastrophic news for people who work in Port Talbot in Wales. It must be devastating for them. Again, I that's something we got into on the Richie Allen Show even before the whole COVID thing, right? Again, how um I won't get into it cuz I'll be here all day and I won't stop and I'll start ranting so we won't do that. All right, that's about all I can tell you. Pakistan um wants talks with Iran. Um nine people were killed by a Pakistan uh by the Pakistani military in retaliation to an attack inside Pakistan by the Iranian military. Uh the Pakistanis are saying we need to talk about this before it escalates. That's all I can tell you about that right now. It's time for a tune. I'll take a tune. When we come back, we will have David Curtin on the Richie Allen Show. And I'm looking forward to that. A little bit later on in the second hour, we'll be joined by Laura Boyle from Fermoy in Cork. And that's to do with the overall issue of mass immigration in Ireland or uncontrolled immigration. Time now is 28 and a half minutes past the hour. This is ACDC and Thunderstruck. Keep the messages coming in to RichieAllen.co.uk. That's my website where it says comment live. I promise you I will read them out as the program develops, okay? Thunderstruck from ACDC from the album The Razor's Edge, which is a massive album. Around about 1990, 1991, I can't remember. Uh, While we're waiting for David and I think Uh, David might be shortly, might be slightly delayed. It's been one of these weeks, I swear to God. If you had any idea, this programme has been on air since September 2014. And things happen in, you know, little bursts. When things go wrong, we've had a couple of issues this week, haven't we? They tend to happen in, in a cluster in a short space of time. Again, there should be academic interest in this. Why does it happen like that? I don't know. But it's one of these weeks. But it gives me a chance to tell you something or to share something with you, um, which I meant to do before. I get a lot of uh, correspondence from people who've got something that they are doing, like an event or something. And they ask me, would I give it a mention or give it a plug? Um, But I have a rule about that. I've never spoken about this on the programme. So here it goes. If you're running an event, okay, and it's related to raising awareness about the issues we discuss on this programme, if you're running an event, and if it is free of charge, I will give it all the mentions in the world. I will mention it for you, and I will push it. However, if you are running an event, and you are selling tickets, I'm not going to do that for you. Um, You can advertise with me. You can reach out to me and say, Richie, I'm running an event. And um, I'm selling tickets for it. I've got a website. We're selling tickets. We've got performers coming. Would you promote it? Yes, I will, but for a price. And that's perfectly understandable. So I'd like to just clear that up because I had people coming to me recently saying that they were doing events around the country, uh, ticketed events where people are being charged 25, 30, 40, 50 quid. So would you give it a plug, Richie? Uh, No, I won't. And give it a plug for free. Um, you know, the Richie Allen Show needs to survive. It needs oxygen. But if you're doing anything for free, and it's entirely voluntary, it's sorry, it's entirely you're doing it on a, on a voluntary basis, and it's out there for anybody to attend, and there's no money involved, of course I will do it. I've always been happy to do that. There was a time when there was a bit of a community notice board thing where I would find events going on, talks going on, which were free to attend and I would mention. So just to clear that up, if you've got something you are doing and you're selling tickets for it and it is an enterprise, of course I'll help you promote it, but there is a fee for that. So uh, you know now anyway, okay? So no offence needs to be taken in the future when I say no. (laughs) No, not unless you pay me okie dokie uh, David tells me he's on Skype now I bet you David Curtin has changed his Skype details this happens as well we're having one of these weeks what a week I'm having Eugene Levy famously said in the film Splash um, ok I, I'm just going to have to take another tune he's telling me he's there he's available he's ready to rock and roll he's ready to go but I don't think he is In any case, you can keep your messages coming in to me, richieallen.co.uk, where it says comment live, comment live it is, and uh, I'll read those out as we go along. I do believe, uh, no he's not there, David isn't there, so I'll tell you what I'll do, I'll take another tune, and then we'll find out if he's using a new Skype account, which he might very well be doing, and if he is, we'll connect with that, and then we'll crack on. Right, in the meantime, here is music from the truly great... The truly great wet leg. It's wet leg and Shays Long Yeah music from Wet Legs, that is Shays Long, the founder and the leader of the Heritage Party, David Curtin, is on the line. Good evening, David. Hi, Reggie. How you doing? I'm really well. I think you've changed the That's what you did on me. You set me up there today. You changed the count. I, I have to, I have Sorry. to take. I have to take responsibility, David. It's my responsibility to check these things out before going to air. But I've become so complacent, David. That's the problem. If you were, if you'd have been my teacher, you'd, you'd have had problems with me. Complacency is my That's issue. A Listen, been you're, a bad boy. <laughs> yeah, I've been a bad boy. Yeah, I should have double checked. Listen, you're welcome as usual. It's very late in January to say this, but happy new year to you and yours. And I hope it's a, a much better year than recent years, pal. So good to have you back on the programme. First things first. What do you make of this Rwanda debacle or scandal? or story developing in Westminster. Um, It
2: just goes on and on, doesn't it?
0: Yeah, what do you you make of it? I mean, I personally, from day one, thought it farcical that you would take people, you were unsure if they had a legitimate claim to asylum, that you would send them 3,000 miles away to Rwanda. I suppose our listeners would like to know from you, is that the best way to deal with that? Why is the UK seemingly incapable of of stopping these people getting here in the first place, David, over to you.
2: Yeah, well, no, it's not the best way to deal with it at all. As I've said from the beginning, and many other people have said, the only way to deal with this is to push the boats back to France and make sure that people who are trying to cross illegally don't actually even make it to England. If Australia can do that, and Greece can do that, why can't we do that? You know, we've got a huge water channel between us and the nearest country. I mean, it's not like a land border, which would be easier to cross, you know, they're crossing the channel. I mean, there's no excuse for this. It's like the part in Westminster, fake conservative, obviously in government, but Labour supposedly in opposition, they're supporting what they do. They they seem to want mass immigration and they're not doing anything to stop it. They're actually facilitating it by sending the border force and the Royal Navy to go and pick up illegal migrants coming in these boats. And, you know, they're getting Um, escorted halfway across by the French Navy or the French Coast Guards. And then they're meeting them in the middle, picking them up and bringing them back to Dover. So there's obviously some very organized scheme that is going on, which the people in government and the people in the civil service um, have full knowledge of. Um, So, you know, the Rwanda scheme was first mooted In April 2022, just before the local elections. And that was one of the first ones when the fake Conservative Party realized they're going to really drop a lot of votes here and lose a lot of seats in the council elections. So they were trying to throw a little bit of red meat to their core voters to pretend that they were going to do something about immigration. But look, two years on, not a single person has gone to Rwanda. Um, We've given the Rwandan government something like 100. Hundred and twenty million pounds, and there's however many hundreds of millions of pounds more in the pipeline for not a single person to be going. And it's not a deportation scheme; it's an exchange scheme. So we send people there, and then we take people back. So we're not actually reducing the numbers of people who are coming to the country at all. Um, so we need to deal with that, and we also need to deal with the legal migration, which is out of control and and even uh, greater. Um, in, in terms of scale and illegal migration. So, you know, th- that's my thoughts. I think, you know, people realise that that's what needs to happen, but you're not going to get that happening from anyone who's continuing to push this Rwanda farce, which is what it is.
0: Yeah, on the money, didn't Paul Kagame, the Rwandan president, didn't he say that if it does come to pass that nobody is flown to Rwanda. I think he said he would return uh, the money. He said that, didn't he, in the last few days. But let me pick you up on something you said earlier. Two things you said which I'm fascinated by. You said there's obviously something going on, you said, between our government, civil servants, and maybe the other side. So do you think, I mean... Listen, I'm not taking the piss when I say conspiracy theory. I mean, I talk about conspiracy theories all the time and I'm, I'm wide open to these possibilities. Do you think that while governments are telling us that they would like to do better in dealing with migration or, or too much migration, they want to do better with, on that to better protect people in this country, to protect their jobs and protect their access to public services. So they're saying that we need to do better. We need to stop... Um, we, we need to reduce numbers. But do you think on, on in reality that they're actually doing the opposite and not by accident? Is that what you're telling me? That they're saying we're going to reduce numbers, but in reality, secretly, they're doing the opposite?
2: Well, it's no surprise that the people in power in politics are deceitful And this is exactly what they're doing in this area, and many other areas. And you know, people can say, Oh, I'm a conspiracy theorist, but you can see it going on. And you can see the satellite trackers of the ships and where they go over and they meet the French Coast Guards or French ships escorting them in the middle of the channel. So clearly, there's something happening there that people know about, you know, if if they wanted to stop the boats, they could stop the boats. But Rishi Sunak stands in front of a sign, or behind a sign saying stop the boats like he's some kind of activist when he's the prime minister. It's absolutely ridiculous. So, you know, I don't know what goes on in the meetings behind closed doors and who's in those meetings, but you can clearly see and we know from reports you know, you've got people in the civil service who are very, very much opposed to any measures to stop migration. There are some people there who are activists who get into positions of power and uh, they facilitate migration. But then you've got people who are in front of the cameras and they say, we're going to do something, we're going to do something. And they've been saying that for 14 years and they've done nothing. And it's got worse and worse. And the scale of migration has got larger and larger. So you can clearly see that what they say is a complete opposite to what they do.
0: Yeah, I heard somebody say recently on, because I tend to think like you, I tend to think that it is preposterous to tell the British people that you can't prevent the people landing. However, a lovely old gentleman now whose name escapes me, but he's a former rear admiral, and he was on GB News during the Christmas break, and I thought he made a good point when he said it's incredibly dangerous to ask Royal Navy vessels to go out in bad weather, in freezing conditions, and try to turn around... Dinghies that might not be the most seaworthy vessels in any case, to try and turn them around and push them back is dangerous, this guy said, and it might lead to fatalities. What do you say to that, David?
2: Well, they don't normally come over in very bad weather. That's why over Christmas and New Year, they kind of stopped for two or three weeks. But that was because the weather was really bad. It was really cold. It was really choppy. But the majority of them tend to come over on calm days when it's sunny, when there's not big uh, tidal flows and you know waves and so on. So it would be safe for them to go out when the majority come over and push them back when the conditions are calm. So, you know, I don't see that that is a big problem problem, to be
0: honest. As a Christian man, right, now I'm agnostic, I don't know where I am, I'm finding my spirituality and I'm not saying that in jest, but I know you're a man of faith and you're a sincere man. When I put it to you, and I think I did in the past, that if you were in a country where the prospects for a decent job and you know, good, a good standard of living for you and your wife and your family were eroding you know, as time goes on, becoming more and more difficult. Um, why wouldn't you look to get to the UK or get to Ireland or get somewhere else in Europe? As a as a Christian man, a man of God, do you understand why a lot of people in places where prospects are not great might want to come over here? And do you have any sympathy for them when you put it like that? Well, of
2: course, and I I don't blame people for wanting to make their lives better. And I don't blame people who are coming over because the reason they're coming over is because they get rewarded. They get rewarded with hotel accommodation, healthcare, uh, welfare, uh, they could bring their families over, get education for their kids. They can get, disappear into the black economy without, you know, many people chasing them up for a few years. And then eventually they can get settled status and then they can get a job in the regular market. So I don't blame people for coming over, but we have to look after our own country. We have to look after our own people first, like any other country would do. And many of the countries where people are coming from um, would not accept you know, migrants coming into to their countries or in neighbouring countries. You don't have a problem with mass immigration into most African countries or Asian countries. It's only Western countries, really, that there is this huge inflow. Yeah, but you're mass-
0: brighter. Hang on, hang on. You're much brighter than that, my friend. You know the reason for that is is because there's very little going on in those countries in terms of stable employment and good living prospects. Hence, they don't have to deal with them. And in looks like that
2: yeah that's true so people who are looking for a better standard of life they are economic migrants but people who want to come and work should go through the proper legal channels. And there are many, many legal channels and there are many visa schemes. I think too many, to be honest, I would put strict caps on work visas and student visas. But if people wanna come over legally, they should do it by the book through the systems which are in place, not try to come across the channel illegally and jump the queue. And therefore we have, obviously in this country, there's a housing crisis, there's not the infrastructure to cope with it, we haven't built enough houses, there's not enough doctors places, GP surgery places, school places, etc. So we we simply can't continue to allow, what is it, you know, we've got 1.2 million net Um, sorry, gross, 755,000 net, that's legal, but then you've got the 50,000 illegal people coming across the channel. Um, We we simply can't cope with this as a country. And it's been allowed to happen and grow. And, you know, we we need to just say, if you're going to come across because you're looking to better your prospects, fine, you know, I respect that. But there's not room for everybody to come over. There's only a certain number of people that we can actually cope with as a nation.
0: Before we talk about something else, um, David Courten is our guest, by the way, the founder and leader of the Heritage Party. Just before we talk about something else, on this issue, I listen to BBC Radio 5's Wake Up To Money programme as I'm out with um, with my dogs and there's, there's often some interesting things on there. Um, for, for listeners who don't know about that programme, it's a programme about finance and about the economy and about money and business. Recently, he was inundated by people in business contacting him and I think he was able to verify this. The guy's name is Will Bain, the presenter. That um, there are Tens of thousands of job vacancies in this country, if not more, that cannot be staffed. And it isn't just in hospitality, David. And he heard from people who work in um, various finance sectors, uh, call centres, people who work in administration, or they go and find people to fill administrative roles. And they were talking about people not turning up for interviews and finding it really desperately difficult to to, to staff. Um, jobs, and that this is leading to companies getting into trouble because they can 't fulfill orders and they can 't do business effectively, so what do you say to that? I mean, is there not some role if that 's true for for migrants to take those jobs if if you know if if british people if nationals people living here um British nationals and then others who are living here legally if they're not enough to um fill the, the job vacancies in the country at the moment. Well, surely now more than ever, we need to get the economy up and running, to get the economy back uh, somehow to where it was before COVID. We need migrants more than ever.
2: No, look, I think that we have a, a systemic problem which has been created over the last 25 years because after Tony Blair set the um target of 50% of young people going to university that took a lot of young people out of the job market who would have gone into work at 16 or 18 um with with also with cameron you know making people in england stay in schools to 18 who would have done those jobs and who would have gone into entry level jobs learned how to work got mature learned maturity learned responsibility and then been able to advance through the employment market and you know skill up and uh, get more mature and then you'd have people who are British who are young who've got experience who could do those jobs but the fact that we now have uh, an education culture which I think is wrong where you have everyone has to stay in education to 18 and then way way more people millions more people go to university and do courses which they're not suited to rather than going to work, means you've got millions of people who could do those jobs that are not gainfully employed. They're taken out of the system by this crazy idea that we need to keep people in school and in university when actually the people that should stay in school and then go to university may be 15 to 20% of the population, not 50 or 60% of the population. So that then creates Um, some kind of skew in the country, in the employment market, which then people say, oh, well, we need migrants to fill those jobs. But that's because there's two or three million young people who are not working. um, And and we've got what is it, half a million NEETs, not in education, employment or training as well, um, who could be doing those jobs. So there's plenty of people, but they're not in the right place. And so we need to address that.
0: David, I want to move to something else. I know you're interested in this. So Andrew Bridgen, the MP, chaired a debate earlier this week in Westminster, not in the House of Commons, but in another room. And 19 MPs turned up. And he had a series of very disturbing facts with him. And I know you are cognizant of these facts. You know all about them. But it was about the the, the mystery surrounding the increase in excess deaths deaths even in this country. And again, for listeners who, and I'm not suggesting our listeners are stupid, but they hear so so many things. It's nice to kind of clarify. Excess deaths, for our listeners, are deaths above the average. You know, unexpected deaths. Deaths that are above what you would normally expect uh, during any period, whether it's a five-year period or a single period of, say, year-on-year. And there are far more people dying these days than previously. And before David comes back in, just to give you an example of that 577,000 registered deaths in this country in 2022. That was up on 2021, by the way. In 2023, 581,000. There's a big increase in the death numbers in middle aged and younger groups. So, for example, the 50 to 64 age group. So, a 12%. Rise in excess debts, uh, more m- m- more excess debts than usual in 2022, and a 13% rise last year. Something is very wrong, David. And yet, despite the fact that social media was ablaze with um, Andrew Bridgen's debate, uh, Cathy, I can't I can't pronounce Cathy's name. You might know better than I do. Cathy, who ed- who edits the Conservative Woman, um, she said, and she's right to, for, for shame. Not a single commercial or national newspaper or radio or television station has mentioned this. Something is very wrong, isn't it?
2: It is. It's appalling that the mainstream media is not even mentioning it because here you've got an event in Parliament which is addressing something that should be of great concern. And you know, I think I looked into the figures, and I think the average number of deaths in the UK is something like 536,000 over the period 2015 to 2019. So pre-COVID. So you know, the figures you're you're saying we've got 40, 50,000 excess deaths a year in 2022, 2023, That's which right. is you know over 10 percent. Um, that's very, very concerning. And you know, doctors and experts say they're baffled. But I mean, anybody who's looking into it can see that this is um, concurrent with the um, rollout of the experimental injections as they should be properly referred to. So um, there's a, lots of evidence for this and there's so much evidence for how they are causing injuries and how they're causing harms and causing deaths as well. Um, it's no mystery to me and anybody who's looking looking into it and he's got half a brain. So it's really good that there's this event was in Parliament to highlight it. And you know, nineteen MPs going along now. That's great. I wish that they would have spoken out before the rollout happened you know so that they could have prevented people from getting injected but many people have and and we're living with the consequences now but at least you know people are starting to realize that these things are harmful and uh, people are not going to get boosted whatever at the moment so um that's something but it should be given more coverage and and should be taken much more seriously
0: no doubt you you're hearing anecdotal evidence in london aren't you about well, about two things. One, that the jabs are causing harm. But also, I, I mean, I'm h- hearing anecdotal evidence around Salford, that, you know, even people who never heard of the independent media, and who always trusted the establishment, and talking about, you know, middle aged and older people, in their droves, they are refusing the boosters. Are you hearing that too? Is that people are yeah. kind of wising up to it?
2: outside the media bubble in in everyday life you know in the pubs in the coffee shops in the cafes and supermarkets where people meet almost everybody knows somebody who's been harmed by this now. I mean, I I didn't so much in 2021, but now, you know, I'm I'm increasingly hearing of more and more people that I know or friends of friends who have have got vaccine injuries and even died after having an injection, you know, who were well before they've had it and then they've got problems with cancer or problems with their heart and, you know, their problems with their breathing, all kinds of things. And so so almost everybody, knows somebody now who's been affected and that's deep down even if they're told oh no it's nothing to do with it people know people understand that you know they were well they had an injection then they weren't well and so you know that wasn't any kind of mystery disease that was cause and effect and that's what people are seeing uh, increasingly and that's what people are understanding in real life away from the manipulation of the media and the government
0: Can I ask you before we run out of time today, it's good to have you back on. I look forward to speaking with you this year, David. Thanks for coming on. You're listening to David Curtin, a politician who founded and leads the Heritage Party. As usual, I'll put links to where you can find David, even though many of our listeners know all about David. They know where he is. But uh, the Heritage Party website. He's also on Twitter. It's at David Curtin. That's K-U-R-T-E-N. There's a bit of a movement around Europe Bit of a rejection of, but um, I don't know what we could we we would call it a rejection of the same old, the same old. People the turning new world away... world order, maybe? <laughs> yeah, you could say it like that. A rejection of the new world order, a rejection of the reason. We're seeing it everywhere. Is that... We, we could even talk about farmers' protests around Europe, in, in Germany, in the Netherlands, in the Republic of Ireland as well, where farmers are saying, you know, they're seeing what's happening farmers. They're seeing that their livelihoods are going to be completely taken out from underneath them, based on a spurious claim, in my opinion, it must be said, is that... Um, you know, human beings are causing catastrophic climate change, which I do not believe um, is happening. But that's just my opinion. David might see it differently. But we're seeing this all around Europe. And we're seeing it, of course, in Central and Latin America as well. Should we be optimistic about that or cautiously optimistic? Or should we be sceptical? Because movements come and go. You know, just before you answer that, um, somebody said to me before, Richie, the establishment is very good at presenting movements which appear to be opposing it, the establishment, but in fact they are controlled, what we might call controlled opposition. So so what do you think of that? Should we be optimistic or cautiously optimistic about this kind of um, big rising uh, against uh, the new world order?
2: Well, you know, the the movements that are the very obviously controlled opposition with those that you might call woke or to do with the climate like Extinction Rebellion and Black Lives Matter. I mean, you know, they're funded and it's all orchestrated by the establishment to advance the woke agenda, if you like, and advance um, agenda 2030 and all of these kind of things. Um, with the people who are for freedom, uh, you know, I was very much involved in the freedom movement in the UK in 2020 to 20. 22. And there were so many wonderful, wonderful people who went to, into the rallies and, and marched together. But, you know, you do have questions about whether some people who were there and were involved were actually state agents trying to make something and control the movement and, and lead the movement. You know, as Lenin said famously, um, the best way to control the opposition is to lead it. And, you know, I did see people that I thought were obviously agents of some kind, you know, there to lead people a certain way up to fighting freedom, but then lead them off into a cul-de-sac. And you have to be careful about that. But, you know, I think with the protests and the farmers rallies, you know, what's happening in Germany now and what happened in the Netherlands last year, which is very much the same thing, is genuine. They really are genuine, small and medium-sized farming businesses and you know, ordinary people who are going to be put out of a job, whose businesses are going to be ruined by the whole green agenda, because in Germany they're putting up taxes on farmers' diesel, which is going to put them out of business. And in the Netherlands, they were going to um, uh, put restrictions on nitrogen emissions, with nitrogen is something that farmers use all the time to provide, you know, nitrogen based fertilizers are needed to grow food. That's right. It's insane. Um, but you know, I think they're genuine, but in any genuine move, there will always be state agents and uh, agents from some places trying to come in to infiltrate it to cause problems. You know, I I saw that in the freedom movement and I saw that also, you know, before I started the Heritage Party, I was in UKIP before before the referendum, but UKIP collapsed and imploded after the referendum. But I actually saw, you know, it was incredible to see people um, activated on every level to cause trouble and to cause arguments and to pull the party apart. So, you know, I've seen it with my own eyes how, Um, an organisation could get infiltrated and destroyed. It's remarkable. And, um, you know, I I would not be surprised if um, the agents uh, of, you know, globalism (laughs) want to try to do that to any movement that exists. But at the moment, I I think that the majority of people rising up in Germany are genuine, ordinary farming people.
0: No doubt. And a very final one, an absolutely bloody final one, an ABF, as we call it here. Um, Steve makes a good point on On my website, uh, comments are coming in on this. Um, He wonders if the excess death topic has been overshadowed by the Fujitsu slash Post Office Horizon scandal. Uh, He might have a point there. I mean, while I said this on the programme, while if you were caught up in that and you were a postmaster or postmistress and you lost your job and if you were prosecuted and even spent a couple of months in prison, terrible thing, awful, needs to be addressed, needs to be dealt with. But my God, they've given it some coverage, haven't they? I mean, unbelievable, (laughs) haven't they?
2: Yeah, they have. But you you know, I think people are really appalled at what's happened to these people. And when you have, you know, human beings in, you you know, you can, you can focus on one particular human being. And it's, you know, the Mr. 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 Bates versus the post office, you've got one person there who's, you know, a drama has been made about them, their case and, and people can see the humanity of one person and how their life has been destroyed. And then you understand that's happened to hundreds of people and so people can see that and and they get emotionally involved and and it, obviously you can see how horrendous this is when you've got people that you can see and relate to and empathise with. But the thing is with this, I mean, it's a really important issue. The excess deaths is a really important issue. So is immigration. So is the Epstein trial. Um, So is the German farmers' protests. Um, So is the the, the national debt that we've got. So is election fraud. I mean, there's 20 or 30 or 40 different issues which are all really, really important, all coming at us at the same time. And the thing is, it's really hard to, to say, you know, that one is more important than the other. They're all there because we're just being bombarded with things which are really crazy and, and uh, wicked and opposing ordinary people. And, uh, you know, we, we have to try somehow to keep all of them in mind and fight on all of the fronts where things are coming against us.
0: Well said, David. Thanks for coming back today. Love to have you on. It's lovely to have you on, lovely to have you on. Um, when you do come on, I, ho- I look forward to the next time. Um, have a good year, but we'll talk before, you know, we won't be leaving it till the end of the year to speak. But uh, continued success to you and yours. Thanks, David. Thanks, Richie. You were listening to David Curtin, the founder and leader of the Heritage Party, on Thursday's Richie Allen Show, six and a half minutes past the hour. Now, thanks for your messages through the website and um, Multitasking here. I've got my smartphone in hand. Uh, Pandora says, cease using the term anecdotal. It is worn out and the game is up. I I don't know what you're, you're referring to. I don't know what you mean by that. Anecdotal. Do you not understand what anecdotal means? It means that you are hearing things anecdotally. Anecdotal means you are hearing rumours, you are hearing stories, but you yourself haven't really verified them. It doesn't mean that you're saying they are untrue. It's just anecdotal. Anecdotal is good. You hear a lot of anecdotal things, and they often turn out uh, to be true, so I don't know what you're talking about. Uh, Colin says, David is right to come legally... Asylum seekers, if you want to come, they can be vetted then. And we, says Colin, we uh, can see if they've got anything to offer before we offer them anything. Otherwise, they are a drain on our resources, says Colin. Thank you, Colin. Jim says, Richie, I think when Starmer gets in, every major city in the UK will have its own ules. Then, after a year or two, uh, Towns will introduce it as well. Um, a lot of county councils are going bankrupt in the guise of climate change. Uh, It'll be another way of restricting our movement, says Jim. Thank you uh, for that, Jim. It's Thursday's Richie Allen show, I think I've said that. It's nearly eight minutes past the hour of five o'clock. Joining me shortly from Fermoy in Cork will be um, Laura, Laura Boyle. Tell you more about her in a minute. In the meantime, it's time for more music. So at the moment... I can't access RichieAllen.co.uk, meaning I can't receive or I'm not receiving any messages which are sent through the app. I'm sorry about that. There isn't anything I can do about it for the moment. Hopefully it'll be resolved by the weekend. If not, we'll improvise, adapt and overcome. Here's music from The Who then. And this is Baba O'Reilly back with my next guest in a moment and your comments too. Right, to music from The Who, that's uh, Baba O'Reilly. It's uh, just about 12 minutes past the hour. Thursday's Richie Allen Show, live from BBG Towers here in Salford. Before we welcome Laura to the programme, let me me remind you about that article in The Telegraph today. So, what's happening in Ireland, as we've said repeatedly in recent weeks, is garnering international media attention. It's pretty much everywhere. So this is Michael Murphy writing in The Telegraph today. Rural Ireland revolts as town's only hotel is closed to accommodate asylum seekers. So he's referring to a hotel in Ross Cray in Tipperary. We've been talking about this in recent days, okay? where there's been a protest against the housing of asylum seekers uh, there. He talks in his article, does Murphy, about riot police being drafted in uh, to deal with it to facilitate the housing of uh, these asylum seekers. And then he makes some interesting points in his article, which, to be fair, you don't hear on the British broadcast media, because Sky and the BBC has reported on Ireland, but it isn't giving you the hard facts. And Murphy does. Here's the hard fact. Or or the, the the most salient point, right? Immigration in Ireland rose by 32% in a year. Uh, that's April 22 to April 2023. That's amazing. 140,000 people arriving in the country. Okay? 13,000 asylum seekers and nearly 100,000 Ukrainians have arrived in the country. Um, he writes that this is the largest influx of people since 2007 and it's happening while there is a shortfall of a quarter of a million homes in Ireland and astronomical rent prices. He goes on to write that it is happening around the country. It is happening around the country. It's happening in Fermoy in County Cork. I came across a really interesting audio clip, which I can't share with you right now, but we'll talk about it um, anyway in in, in, the, in the next few minutes. And it was with um, with, with Laura Boyle. Now, Laura is a, an activist to protest. She's in Fermoy in Cork. She's originally from uh, Kerry Tralee, I think. And um, she is living only several doors away from Abbeville House in Fermoy. There are plans to house up to 60 uh, men in this particular uh, hotel. And there has been a protest there and it's been ongoing for some time. Let's welcome to the programme, Laura Boyle. How are you doing, Laura? Welcome.
3: Hi, Richie. Thank you for having me. Great to be on.
0: No, it's nice to have you on. Thanks so much. Um, Interesting stuff by Michael Murphy in the British Telegraph newspaper today. It kind of really accentuated for people just why there is so much um, um, concern, I suppose, in Ireland, amongst Irish people, about the influx of people into the country. A 32% rise year on year, April 22 to April 2023, And at the same time, that massive shortfall in accommodation. It's nice to see that because a lot of the stuff you read in the international media um, is painting this in, you know, in terms of black and white. In other words, that you got the poor asylum seekers and you got a bunch of racists who don't want them there, which is not exactly what's going on. Tell us about what's been happening in Fermoy, Laura. We've got plenty of time, by the way, so you don't need to rush. I won't be interrupting you. What's going on there?
3: Yeah, because he made some great points there that I'd love to come back on. But basically what's happening in Fimoire is we're on day 60 today of a 24-7 vigil, I think we're calling it at this stage, Richie, um, where we have a tent. It's not the prettiest of tents, but it served us well for the past 60 days. And it is outside this beautiful 1840, I think the building is, um, Abbeville House. It was a five-star bed and breakfast. It was a previous um, maternity hospital. A lot of people that are standing with us in the tent were born in the hospital, were born there, Um, so it has a long, long history. It's a beautiful building in a really um, historic part of town. Formoy, in fact, is a garrison town, and it is a very historic town. A lot of the buildings in the town are actually protected structures Um it has a long a long long history with the, the British Army being based here so it is a very visible site it's on the main road as you come into town it used to be the main Dublin Cork Road in fact until it was the town was bypassed a few years ago so that's just setting the scene and yeah I live about four doors up literally in another lovely old building um lovely area you know very happy to be living in this beautiful part of Fermoy. Of
0: 60 days, that's a long time. So listeners will be screaming at me to ask you, have 56 or 60 men been uh, brought to uh, the house or has that not happened yet? I'm guessing it hasn't happened.
3: It hasn't happened yet, Richie. And we've talked a lot and we've mused a lot in the tent ourselves as to why it hasn't happened. We got um, this famous letter that you, the the, the Roger, Minister Roger Gorman's office sends out this letter to town councillors and people in the know finally bringing them into the know because in general they're being kept in the dark Um, And usually um, the the, the migrants are moved into the building um, within about 48 hours. That's been the typical scene around the country. We got that famous letter saying the building was about to imminently come into use as an IPAS centre on the 12th of December and there still is nobody in the house. Now we had a very good head start on that letter because I suppose we live quite near we live very near, we've noticed changes in the house because initially the facade of the house was being um defaced is a, it was the word i used because a barricade it was kind of being um constructed that had to be taken down eventually because we wrote in letters to the county council protesting but that's what drew our attention to some to the fact that something was happening with the house so we've had a long head start whether or not that's one of the factors that has stopped it but we also have uncovered a lot of um uh, issues regarding the fire the safety of the property and how bringing it into state into compliance with fire regulations could in fact will in fact compromise adherence to the preservation laws that would be on such a historic building
0: this is um you won't be surprised. A lot of comments coming in through my website on on this. Not just from people back home, but but people listening here in the UK as well. Um, folks, you're listening to uh, Laura Boyle. Laura's an activist. She's um several doors away from a beautiful old building in uh, from in County Cork, Abbeyville House, where it is planned to house uh, up to 60 uh, men. Locals there are saying, look, no, it's not right. It's going to be problematic for the area. Um, Legitimate reasons, I think, being put forward, why people are concerned. What we saw in Ross Cray in Tipperary was, I don't know if you'd call it an escalation, but it was a different tactic, wasn't it? They eventually decided to put um, families, uh, women and children in there. Um, I, I'm, I'll ask you about that in a moment if you suspect they might change tack with um, Abbeyville House and they might do the same, they might decide to say right, we're, we're not going to put men in there, we'll put families. But they turned up pretty heavy handed, the police um, to kind of force you know, the the issue and, and I suppose to kind of forcibly push these people into the uh, house in Ross Cray. Are you expecting anything like that, Laura? What, what, are you prepared for that if that happens?
3: <laughs> I, I... First of all, Richie, you know, maybe I'm an activist, but I am a mother and I I work full time. I don't want to be in this situation. None of us do. Um, And it is quite scary, to be honest, speaking as a woman and as a mother. And I find the whole and everything that happened in Musgrave very upsetting and very scary. You can still hear me?
0: Loud and clear. Yeah, I'm, Hello? I'm, yeah I can hear oh, you yeah, Sorry. Sorry, um, sorry.
3: Um, but um, what was I going to say? I, I, I kind of had this maybe naive belief in the past months that they would never, our, our, our police force that's, you know, charged with being our protectors would never do that to us. I, I really felt and I, I guess naively that there's no way that they would stir, you know, stir, um, stir people's emotions to that extent and be so heavy handed. I really felt that they wouldn't do it and that the optics would be terrible but the fact that they did in rascrae has really made me wake up and realize that it must be, and I guess it could be, the desperation of the situation. Apparently, there's there's four or five hundred people asleep in tents that have come into the country um, since the start of um, December. So clearly, the situation is reaching desperation stakes. And the citizens, um, and when I, I include all the people that are currently living in the country. And we have many people from all over the world supporting us in our campaign. You know, it's just it's just to, to hell with them. And we've got to get these people income hell or high water. But still, I believe. The use of children and the way it was done, the children were weaponized. It was an unfair situation to put them into. I do not blame the people that were standing there. They're people like me. They're people like m- people I am with in the tent outside Abbeyville. We are good people. We're not violent people. And we're largely welcoming. And I mean, I've met the salt of the earth in the past 60 days. But if you bring, if you arrive so heavy handed, and I was corrected this morning in a, in a, in a different interview, because I also said riot squad. And apparently I, uh, it's a public order there's a nuanced slight difference there but still to all intents and purposes and to me looking at it online I was saying wow this is scary these guys look intimidating and um, several guardy trucks or vans pulled up and it was all very heavy handed and obviously people on tenterhooks down there for days on end standing outside racket hall which is you know, what an aptly named place, what a racket that has all been. It was a functioning hotel, et cetera. You probably know the story yeah. and all the staff were just left go two or three days in advance. So obviously it was an incendiary kind of move and it was a powder keg. And to do it that way, it just was so, so disappointing. So, yeah, we, we, are, we are nervous that the same is going to be done here in Fermoy now.
0: But the thing is, it kind, of, it kind of backfired on them, I think, and I am genuinely objective here. People may, maybe won't believe that, but I am. I am objective. Um, as an Irishman who's travelled around the world to find work and to better my own life, you know, I have sympathy with economic migrants, a lot of sympathy with them, and I, I had David Curtin, who's a, I suppose you'd say David is a Christian conservative, he's a politician, he was on with me in the first air, he's a former member of the London Assembly, and I, I, I put it to David, and I might put it to you, uh, Laura, so look, I do have sympathy with a lot of these people, but look, the fact remains, and it must be frustrating for you. I mean, I I watched um, a, a video, and we'll talk about it in a moment. You, you you've spoken about child trafficking. I mean, this is something people are missing: the potential for criminality here, um, which is which is wide open. In fact, the last time somebody spoke to me about that was about a year and a half ago on this program. We'll come to that, but look. The thing that, that, that disturbs me more than anything is, and it was wonderful in Ross Grey because the, the people, obviously peace, peaceful people, um, decent Irish people, you know, they weren't going to get in, involved. They were not going to be violent towards families uh, of asylum seekers. They were not going to be violent yeah. towards the Garda. Of course they were not. No more than you would be. Here's the thing that kills me. So, it's the ad hominem attack. So, I've seen you being attacked in the national press, the Irish Independent. And this is what they do. It's, it's called an ad hominem attack. You will know all about it, Laura, but our listeners probably won't. So, people like Laura and others are saying, look, you've destroyed, you've decimated public services all over the country. You've made it difficult, it, next to impossible, for people to get dental treatment, to get medical treatment. We can't get a house. So, it is palpably insane then to increase the people coming into the country by 32%. But what they don't do is they don't argue with you on those terms. They don't argue with you on what it is you're saying. They do the ad hominem attack. They attack you on something that you're not saying. So they accuse you of being a nimby or being a racist or being a little Mm. Irelander and all of that old bollocks, excuse my language. That must be very difficult to deal with because I couldn't deal with it, to be honest. Go ahead.
3: Yeah, I... I I'm actually so astounded, Richie, as I, I get that people speak from emotion, you know, and I mean, I, I get emotive myself um, very, very regularly. But I also I suppose I, my background's in science and I have to go with the evidence and and I have a lot of evidence before my very own eyes you know um we're being patronized and told we're 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 falling for myths about immigration and we're on internet or telegram or wherever it is too much you're not going to counter um what's before my own eyes with 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 a patronizing talk down which seems to be the way that the government are proposing to address this let's counteract all of this with talking to them and explaining that they're all falling prey to these myths and they're being infiltrated by the far right and everything i'm sorry but like you're not going to deny me the nose in my face that i can see when i look in the mirror you know what i mean i can see what's happening and we're talking to people that are calling to the tent all the time and that are contacting me through social media i mean the stories are, are, are horrendous but the one section of society that will not talk to me and i mean for many weeks prior to christmas i tried to reach out to our detractors i'm being polite and calling them that and i've said talk to me and some of these are my neighbors and, and I, people i would have thought of as friends and that I know in the town. I said, you know where I live, you know where I am. This is my number. I've dropped my number into various, I said, get them to come. I'm sure I just, maybe again naively felt that over a cup of coffee we can always find common ground and it's difficult to do it on social media but over a table like most people on this planet are good people and you can find common ground but they will not engage and instead i mean i try not look but i sometimes i I stick my name in and look and i i shudder to see what people are saying about me it is just it, it, and these are people who will not show their face, and they're people who have actually passed the tent and commented online on what they've seen there. And I said, my God, I was probably sitting there. Why didn't you say hello, you know? Yeah. So. They're coming from a place just rooted in emotion, will not look at the hard facts and the evidence. We all want to put our arms around the world. We all want peace. We all. But I, my motto in this one has been, let's first, for a change, put our community first. How that makes me an uncaring, nasty person, I do not know, because I consider my community to be made up of people from all over the world, and it is, and we have friends from all over the world, and we have people supporting us in the tent from all over the world. So it's about looking after our immediate community first, and and we can't put our arms around the world. There's only so many resources. Everything is finite. So, you know, you've got to have a bit of common sense in this and put your heart aside for one moment or at least devote some of your heart to your own immediate family and community and then start looking at a little bit of the evidence and the, and, and use a bit of common sense. And that's all we're doing. And that's what I would say unites us down in the tent there.
0: Uh, and, you know, I think far more people than you might imagine you know, people who might you might think are shunning the protesters. Many of them will secretly will support what you're doing, but they're terrified of, of saying anything. And, yeah. you, you know, yeah. establishments for years have been very successful using that tactic. You know, people feel that the, the worst thing that could happen to me is if I am outed on social media or outed somewhere else as some sort of xenophobe. I can't have that and they're mm. terrified of it mm. we, we, I, I used to see this in the independent media years and years ago i'd be a very i'd be very much a critic of the, the state of israel right now i, I would have mm-hmm. pro i'd have pro israeli people on this program all the time in fact i have had uh, since october 7th and we debate about that it's fine yeah. but back but back when i you know first got into news and politics people were terrified to say anything about israel lest lest you be called an anti-semite so that was then and, yeah. and that, that that's come to this issue now where people know the devastation it's going to cause in their community, how it's going to bring hardship to them in hard times. It's not as if hardship is not a thing for people. It is. But if I say anything, Laura, if I say, if I happen to be photographed speaking to to Laura Boyle or anybody else, and if my neighbours think I'm some sort of racist, and that is all encompassing, that really is, a, that's a serious issue, That that fear of being outed or or being accused of something i mean you've obviously gotten beyond that you've managed to get beyond it so have the other protesters but for many in society i reckon they support you but they're scared
3: yeah i i've said to people richie that um like if i didn't live four doors up and have two daughters and one you know that i'm and, and this is my neighborhood like no matter how painful and hurtful it's been to be called a racist when I've got friends from all over the world and I travel all over the world in my job and et cetera, et cetera, it it could never patch and never meet how bad I would feel if something happens in my community to my own children or my friends or neighbor's children. And that is not, and that again, I'm told I'm being alarming and unnecessarily fear-mongering. Again, I have to look to the evidence that is before my own very eyes. In the headline, every day I walk into the supermarket, in newspaper articles about increases in crime in, in North Cork towns, etc. And of course, people will say, yes, Irish people commit crimes too. And we know that. Yes, we all do. But why then will we bring in people from countries that the Irish Department of Foreign Affairs avoids or not, not recommends avoiding, says do not travel to if you look at them up online, like Somalia and countries like that. And yet they're saying, come on in here, welcome and have no documents. So no matter, I can take any kind of abuse rather than I'll take that over the pain of something happening my kids and me not having spoken up about it.
0: Laura, tell us while we have you, what why were you speaking out about about trafficking, child trafficking, and human trafficking? Explain that. How because that's a huge issue, of course, worldwide. Jesus, I don't you you won't know this, of course, but I lived in Spain for a number of years uh, on the Costa del Sol, um, the, the the tourist part of it. We lived in San Pedro near Marbella and geez you drive along the 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 coast road not the Caratera, not the motorway you drive along the coast road and every roundabout there were very young girls standing on roundabouts um they were not 15 16 they were 13 14 and they were prostitutes. These kids, and um, I was warned off once speaking to some of these kids to ask them about their circumstances. I was working for Talk Radio Europe at the time in Marbella, and I thought mm-hmm. we must be able to do something. And we were told we'd just be killed, you know, if we got involved. Yeah. These were kids who were stolen, basically kidnapped out of these countries. Mm-hmm. And do you think that's an issue here with what's happening in Ireland and what's happening in the UK? Tell us about that. What? What? Why are you concerned about human trafficking, people trafficking?
3: Hmm. Yeah. You see, obviously this is a taboo subject and you're not going to see big write-ups about it in the media, but I just piece together. I like looking at kind of complex issues and looking for little bits of evidence that seem to be associated and piecing together a story. And for me, um, some of the people, the main countries that they're coming from are known child trafficking hubs in Europe, you know, Ukraine. And this was in the media many, many years ago before the war broke out there, Albania, countries like that. But the fact of the matter is you got to, And secondly, we have our child protection, Tusla, I often say Tulsa, but I mean Tusliya Tusla, yeah, yeah. have lost apparently, it was in the media only in the past week or two, 300 children from their care that were, so they've just lost them. They vanished into thin air and some of them will have turned 18 since they vanished. So they've given up even looking for them. So you have all these inadequacies in our services that can't protect children. You've people coming in with no documentation, you've people, it seems because we have a centre here and I've gone back and I've checked the available information, which of course is so sparse it's hard to piece together but I'm just throwing it out there and I will stand corrected one of the centers here took in um, 77 people um, over a year ago and there were 25 families mentioned um, included in these there were something like 19 children and um, including eight adult females and I know people that saw those people arriving said there was mostly men so there seems to have been families arriving with just men and children and no women which I find very disturbing and very worrying and again Again, I'd love to stand corrected. I'd love to see the evidence on this, but there's a lot of, um, there's a lot of, there's a lot of reason I think to be very suspect. And also the fact that if you follow the money, money, money makes the world go round. And where there's money and there's profits to be made, there is going to be nefarious goings on. You have a lot of money in this game here in Ireland. Loads of money being made by private individuals. I know they're talking about making asylum centers now into state run. I think that poses a whole other problem because build them and they will come. You're going to increase demand. But outside of that, you have um, a money racket and this is people making money out of warehousing humans basically and warehousing them for as long as possible these are human beings and the vast majority of them i am sure are fine even if they are probably at least at the very least guilty of coming here for economic reasons and not seeking asylum but um we know that women and children are being moved out because we know because they've spoken, they've reached out to some of the independent reporters here. And women and children in direct provision centers, for example, that have been in direct provision centers for up to four and five years, um, and maybe even have jobs or going to school have been plucked out of them and moved to centers where the, the, the public or the community has put a stand against having men. And they, they might seem very happy to, oh, great, we're getting these women and children instead. But those women and children are very likely and very possibly, and there are reports, it's not in the national mainstream media, have been moved out of places where they were already integrated and embedded to fill the places like Abbeville down the road from me here that are refusing to take men. And then they'll put the men into the places they came out of. So it's like warehousing or trafficking people around to fill buildings and of course, to simply get, I, I guess, to get people off the street. But, but then you have to come back to the question as to why we're not turning the tap off on the overflowing bath. It's just, it beggars belief. It's like um, living in an alternative universe where grown individuals and adults in charge of our country cannot just say, let's just turn the tap off. And by that, I mean, Clamping down the barriers and putting much more severe and strict restrictions in place as to people coming in. If they don't have documentation, send them back. Like we are on our, like communities are on our knees here, but of course I'm being told and we're being told we're exaggerating. It's all in our mind and we're on social media too much. So it's like, it's a dystopian, it's a dystopian world here at the moment. I have to say it really is.
0: Tell me this, Laura, um, could it be argued that well, while, while it's understandable, all you can do is petition your politicians locally and then nationally. But could it be argued that ultimately, Leo Varadkar and Micheal Martin and these guys are not really in charge? They take their orders from Brussels, right?
3: Yeah, it could, and we heard. I think an MEP said recently that seventy percent of the of the laws in Dublin have come initially from from the EU. But you got to look at other countries, like I mean, and, and we have. Excuse me if I miss words. I believe the fact that we, signed, we we have the Lisbon Treaty, we voted against it. We in Denmark would be allowed, impose, or don't have to take all um, these people, etc. There are There are definite loopholes. The fact that people are coming in from other countries, third countries, they've already landed in safe countries in Europe. There's loads of reasons why we could put some, you know, stem the flow of um, the influx. 110 single males are arriving in Ireland every week. I mean, outside of all the women and children and families, that is a massive amount of a very, anyone who has sons or who's grown up knows what young single men are like, you know, with nothing to do, I should add. So there's loads of get out and opt out clauses for us, I'm sure. And some countries have um, turned around and are saying, right, for example, I believe in Germany. I just heard mention of it that they're saying they're not taking any more Nigerians, for example, because they don't have a legitimate claim to asylum. So there's loads of reasons why we could... We could enact some even though we're told, um, you know, we're told that, that that they're not and we're bound by all of this. I understand there's a pact, a new EU um, immigration and asylum um, treaty or something or pact or something coming in and you have to opt out of it and it'll, asylum seekers will be assigned to countries based on the basis of their the gdp of the country and of course we've kind of kind of the artificially inflated high gdp here which looks like we're all doing fantastically and um, so we could get a disproportionately high number of 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 migrants through that if that comes in so there's a lot of still very scary things on the horizon and already we are we are on our knees and drowning you know drowning in at least rural communities i think maybe urban communities have absorbed even though dublin is now the one of in the top 10 most dangerous cities in europe when exactly 20 years ago it was in the top 10 safest okay i know this is cause these are only associations we can't imply causation but you got to start looking at what might it be have all the irish people just decided to turn to crime unanimously you know i mean you got to start pulling apart these things they're complex they're intricate and they're delicate and they need a more nuanced look than just black and white labeling right or wrong yes or no you know it's 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 not getting the complexity um of debate that it deserves
0: and finally today um, final question on 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 this um and it's about the your version of our online safety bill um which is incredible hate speech laws going through um, the Eirachtus in, in Ireland, but just just before we we do that, um, folks, you'll find Laura on Twitter, because uh, I know you're interested in this and I know you want to know more about it. If you look for Stave Abbeville House Fermoy in Twitter, you'll find Laura immediately. So it's at Laura hyphen Anne hyphen Boyle. Uh, save Abbeyville House for my... I always put these links on the podcast notes after the live show, so I'll do that. But there you are talking to me now, right? And you're making some interesting yeah. points. You're making legitimate points. I don't think you're a racist. I think you're an intelligent Irish woman with a family and you're concerned about your neighbourhood and you're concerned about your children's future. Um, public service is drastically cut. People can't access things. I'll tell you what we'll do. Let's bring lots more people into the country. It's madness. I totally take that. But there are... Well there there is a law there is a bill uh, going through the um, Irish legislature and it um, might make things very difficult for people like you in the near future in terms of you going online and talking about this stuff you might be labeled an extremist what what what's what your reckon for, for again for people who don't know what we're talking about this is again has garnered international media attention because Ireland's yeah. proposed hate speech law is about the most uh, draconian uh, on planet earth you're obviously worried about this
3: Clarified. i mean I, like i i, I kind of wonder are we the crash test dummies for the rest of europe or something that everything's been tested here yeah. like we were i was in Dublin in the RDS in in last um last september at the free speech um symposium michael schellenberger who's an internationally you know, renowned journalist um, attended, and there was wonderful Irish speakers, Sharon uh, kilgan Senator Sharon Kilgan, and speakers from GRIPT. And it was chilling. It was terrifying. We are in the national international spotlight. It feels like we're guinea pigs or something that's being tested on us. And if us Irish accept it, that it'll be rolled out everywhere. I don't know. It's draconian. It's dystopian. And it is truly terrifying to think that I could be considered um, that I'm spreading hate in what we're doing, or me, or any of my. Wonderful colleagues and friends down in the tent there that we are spreading hate and doing what we're doing. But I, I yeah, it's terrifying. I, it's going to have to be a, a, a big no, but I don't know where it is at the moment. I'm hoping it doesn't get through. But we also have a referendum on the 8th coming up to remove um, the words of woman and to, I believe, totally um, damage, the, the sanctity of the family and the mother in the home um, on the 8th of March as well and with a, ch- a constitutional change up, up um, for for voting. So there's a whole lot happening in Ireland at the moment and as I say, George Orwell wouldn't get a look in uh, no, these days. No, it's amazing,
0: isn't it? And on the hate speech bill I mean, if they declare um, being a migrant to, to being a protected uh, characteristic. So obviously there are protected characteristics around race, of course, ethnicity, sexual orientation, of course, religious freedom. Um, but if they say that being a migrant, migrant itself is a protected characteristic, it'll make things very difficult for people who want to question the legitimacy and the sanity of opening your doors with... Um, you know, with no quotas um, whatsoever. No, du- no doubt about that. This is the absolute bloody final question. Laura, I'm sure you're busy. I don't want to keep mm. you too much longer. But, but on the hoteliers, so I've heard from a couple of hoteliers and God, I feel sorry for them because they didn't want the COVID nonsense sprung on them. Now, I'm, I'm not denying COVID, in case anybody is wondering. Laura <laughs> might have listeners who might have come to the show just for the first time, because Laura is on. I don't know what went on in 2020. There was a virus. Yeah, there was. Maybe there was. Um, it wasn't serious, though we know <laughs> that. And they wrecked the economy. And I've heard from hoteliers who've gone, Richie, I have no choice, Richie. Richie, if they come to me and say, yeah. listen, we'll we'll give you all of this money. You don't have to do squat. You don't even have to make the beds. You don't have to cook. We'll give you this money and we'll take over your hotel. It's a no brainer, Laura, is it?
3: Yeah, arguably it is. And I've seen some really sad cases where people are saying there's nothing more I can do. But everyone has a choice, Richie. Everyone has a choice. And um, you've got to be able to look yourself in the mirror in the morning when you get up and, 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 and acknowledge that you've contributed to the downfall of this country and all our children and grandchildren's future. I mean, you've got to be able to look yourself in the face every morning, and I don't know how they do. But at the same time, I, I, they, they went along with the lockdowns and yeah, you know, took the money from the government. A lot of people warned that don't do it. Don't do it. There's a high price to pay for free money, a high price to pay. And you've got to look as well at a situation in the country, because we keep getting this thrown at us as well, about we need migrate inward migration to, to do all the jobs that Irish people won't do. But I would ask, why is no one asking why are conditions so unfavourable for Irish workers? Well said. Um, that well, said all leaving and, well said, Laura. Well said, because I would go.
0: I'm not, I'm, not, I'm not joking when I say this. Now, I've, I've third level education like yourself. It doesn't mean anything, right? It doesn't. Not to me it doesn't. I'm not, I'm not a snob. i tell you what, Laura. No. If, I, if I got a fair day's pay I would love to work in the fields. I would love it. I picked um, strawberries and, and blueberries when I was a kid for money in Wexford. Um, if you gave me a living wage where I didn't have to worry about mortgage, where I could f- feed myself, have a few beers at the weekend, go on holidays and I could be happy, I would work in the field. You're absolutely bang on. This bollocks about Irish people won't do jobs. Give people proper paying conditions and you'll find you won't have any problems filling yeah. those roles. Absolutely
3: proper living and pay like i was talking to someone recently works in the health service saying nurses that are coming in from the fit, wonderful people they're fantastic i have nothing no problem but they're living eight to a room they're sharing pretty much beds in all the accommodation close to the hospitals in the major cities irish nurses won't do it so they're taking their wonderful skills and training paid for by the irish taxpayer and all our bastions of, of, of education and taking them abroad and being replaced by but by, by wonderful equally well trained nurses but who are prepared to live and work on under pretty grim horrendous conditions so we are there's downward pressure on wages coming about because of all the influx of of, of migrant workers so the whole thing I don't want to use language but it is a SHIT show is the only one I can say because um we got to start questioning all of that and by just playing into the hands of the free and so seemingly simple money for taking in all these migrants is only short is short term you know pleasure for long long term massive pain and I just think it's going to take more and more people to start questioning the very fabric of 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 our social and economic policies that we have in this country at the moment i don't know what's driving them all but they're broken and the institutions are broken and something drastic will have to be done
0: to fix them Hey listen, come back any time um, it's been a while since I've heard such passion on, on this programme, I do mean <laughs> that, I'm not patronising you by the way, you're welcome no. back any time, I mean you'll come back Thank anyway because uh, things are developing there and when there is a significant development uh, you might come uh, back on Laura, very nice to meet you and j- just again too. if people go to Twitter and look for Save Abbeyville House for Moy they'll find Laura, uh, there's a Facebook page too Laura, what's it called?
3: <clears throat> There's um, yes, yeah, Save Abbeville House. Yeah, <clears throat> it's a private group, but we're going to open another one. Our second public um Facebook group is going to be called "Fermoy Says No to Human Trafficking." Actually, so watch out for that too. <clears throat> Excuse me, sorry.
0: Not at all. Good luck with it all, and uh, again, thanks for your time today. Have a great weekend, and we'll speak again. Thanks, Laura.
3: Thank you. you. Bye bye.
0: Bye for now, Laura Boyle, resident Fermoy, four doors down from this um, property, Abbeville House, this great historical property, which they had decided was going to be used to house up to 60 men, it was, young men. And residents said, look, what's what's going on here? You know, we're we're not equipped in in Fermoy uh, to handle this. And uh, they've been camped out there. Well, Laura lives there, but protesters are there on scene. They've been there. I think she said 60 days is today, uh, day 60, uh, I think it is. Let me open my phone. Once again, uh, listeners can access ritchieallen.co.uk in some parts of the world, but others can't. Um, I can when I'm using a 5G connection. I know, I know. Don't start me. Our smartphones connect to 5G. It's not my fault. I didn't do it. Um, it's actually 4G, thankfully, uh, here at um, at the studio. So let me um, bring up the comments before we run out of time. While I'm doing that, uh, there's time for me to tell you that there is another programme. The Richie Allen Show, Monday to Thursday, Politics News, Current Affairs Opinion. Uh, Sunday mornings, 10am to 12 noon. It's uh, called Sunday Morning Melodies. It is a music programme devoid of politics and news. There's no hard news, it's just nice chat. A uh, pub type chat, really, you might call it, and um, high stool chat, you might call it, and some lovely music. I'll be doing that this Sunday at ten uh, to noon, as I always do. Um, Colin isn't conv- isn't convinced there was a novel virus at all. Strange how it uh, how flu disappeared, he says. And look, I- I'll give him that. I mean, yeah, this this, this notion. That flu disappeared off the face of the earth for two whole winters. Agreed. 100% right. Absolutely. Well said. Mr. Sin says, Richie, regarding the protest in Craig this week... The Irish state sent in a public order unit and railroaded a peaceful protest. There were scuffles and one man was arrested. The state then sent in buses of women and children to the site with the public order unit still in situ. How bad are things in the Irish system when they send children into a situation like that? Did the state want to create a situation here for the optics, or are they just totally reckless? Asked Mr. Sin. Thank you for that. I don't know the answer to it. I really don't. But I think the tide is turning, I think. And it it, it, it might be as simple as this. While it is true that th- there's no doubt in my mind, many Irish people are concerned about this, but are reticent. Love that word, reticent. Nervous, right? If I say anything, I, I've seen this amongst my own friends over the years. Now, when I say this, I mean I've seen this amongst my own friends going back two decades, scared to speak about anything, uh, to say anything in certain circumstances, in certain places, lest they be labelled as something. And I could never understand that self-censorship. I do understand it now. Because we, we do live in the age now of cancelled culture. We do live in the age where there are genuinely tangible... Um, repercussions for people who find themselves on not the wrong side, because there is no wrong side everybody's entitled to an opinion whether it's an informed or ill-informed opinion, but if the state, if the apparatus of this, if the hidden hand has said, it has been decreed, trans women really are women people with penises men, can be women it has been decreed as such there you are case closed for many they find themselves unable incapable of saying well actually i don't agree with that because now there are consequences but i i think you see and this is a this isn't new it's something we grew up with you know if you call somebody names, if you slander them and insult them, and you do it repeatedly, without much of a pause or a break, it eventually loses its impact, doesn't it? And it it does, I think. Again, we saw this back in the the period when I came into the independent media. I got my start in commercial radio. I came into independent media, I suppose, when I worked for Talk Radio Europe, which is commercial uh, radio, but I was able to do my own thing and say what I wanted to and interview who I wanted to, and back then, you could be brought down, if you talked about Israel in anything other than supportive terms, you could be brought down by accusations of antisemitism, and people were very scared of that back then. I mean, they really were. They were more scared of being labelled as anti-Semitic than they were of being labelled as a racist. Honestly, that was the word. Oh, don't. Don't. And um, I had it a bit. And eventually it wore off. And I'm seeing this with this situation in Ireland, that this, you know, throwing labels, xenophobes, at you know racists at people is beginning to lose its impact, I think. I really do believe that. And people are getting tired of it. You know, and more people are looking at... Because there is something in us as human beings, something built into us, something that we have innately. And that is that we do have this thing where when something is demonised, and it is demonised from all quarters, whether it be a, pers- a person or, or a movement, excuse me, I'm losing my voice now, when something is castigated from everywhere, there's something in us, It's it's deeply ingrained in us, we're kind of inclined to start to wonder what's going on. Why is everybody piling in on that person. Why is everybody having a go? You become intrigued to kind of find out, well, what's the real story there? And I think in Ireland, this will be happening in Ireland where people will be wondering, well, they can't all be um, little Irelanders. They can't all be Nimbys. They can't all be racists. Why are the... the, Why is the media in its entirety? Why is the political class uh, demonising a group of people in Ireland? who are scattered, by the way, in communities right across the country. I think that's happening at the moment in in Ireland. And it's reflected in the messages I get to this programme from people. You know, some people who send me emails and say, don't read it out, Richie. Uh, don't read it out, don't use my name. But I have sympathy with the protesters in Ross Grey. I have sympathies with the protesters in Mayo, in Cork, in Kerry. I, I, I can't say very much because I, I work in the public sector, And I might end up losing my job. There's no doubt about it. People are all over the world, not just on that, but even on the vaccines, where if you questioned or criticised the COVID jab rollout, if you questioned whether they were doing more harm than good, for a time in 2021 particularly, when we knew they were killing people, um, those who questioned the, the efficacy and the safety of the jabs were hammered from all sides. But that has subsided a bit. Again, because they went overboard too much. Too much criticism of people. That in communities, in towns, in, in, in villages, on the highways and byways, people begin to wonder, why? Why are they going after these people so vehemently? Why are they so viciously trying to take down somebody who's really only suggesting there might be something wrong with the job? Maybe there is something wrong with the job. maybe. So there you are. That's how I see it in, in any in any case. Um that's pretty much all I have time uh, for you today. Thanks to David Curtin. and thank you, David, uh, for coming on in the first hour, the founder and leader of the Heritage Party. And a big shout-out again to Laura Boyle, who was on with me just now. Save Abbeville House for Moy. You'll find that on Twitter and on Facebook. Do uh, check it out. Now, as I've already said, but I'll mention it again, we'll speak again maybe on Sunday morning at 10 o'clock UK time uh, for Sunday Morning Melodies. If that isn't your thing. No harm, no foul. I'll be back uh, on Monday with the Richie Allen Show. And on Monday I've got an incredibly interesting guest coming on the programme to talk about the plans to basically hand over countries. To, countries are not sovereign anyway. We know this. But the last vestige of, of um, sovereignty. How nation states are going to hand over their health policies or the running of their health policies to the World Health Organization. Um, I have a brilliant journalist coming on who's done remarkable research into this on Monday. So that's Monday, but uh, I might talk to you on Sunday. There you go. All right. And I'll breathe now. Thanks for listening. Until next time, from your BBG, it's bye for now. By the way, the papers will be online tomorrow, Friday. That's a Monday to Friday podcast. It's a podcast. It'll be online sometime before 7.30am. Bye now. Slaan Tommel.